Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. This series is made up of some of the brilliant talks we have at Second Home throughout the year. We've pulled a bunch of them together to give you new tools and ways of thinking and hopefully enhance your creativity. Hi, I'm Magdalena Morsi and I look after the cultural programme at Second Home. In this episode, we are joined by supermodel and environmental activist Lily Cole celebrating the official launch of her new book, Who Cares Wins, an optimistic look at those who are making a change in the world. Lily is in conversation with the former Wired editor and tech entrepreneur, David Rowan. They are discussing how we can turn optimism into action. Thank you. And we're interrupting Lily's book launch party because the book is out today and you are at home with some friends in the background celebrating, aren't you? I am going to have quiet friends. (laughs) Can you put your friends on mute individually? (laughs) Yeah, can I meet you all? Um, Yeah, I have some close... It's actually, you know, it's International Friendship Day today. And I have some of my closest friends, obviously not many, given the rules, um, gathered in the kitchen here. Because actually a good friend of mine who's a writer asked me what I was going to do on the day of the launch after I get off Zoom. And I realised I was going to be by myself. (laughs) That would probably be quite sad. So I invited a few friends over. It's a lonely business being a writer, Lily. Um, You'll learn that because today your book, Who Cares Wins, is out. Um, Encapsulate the optimistic argument that you make in the book. So I guess, I mean, it's easy to not be optimistic, I think if you engaged with the data and the science, um, which the book is encouraging people to do around the climate crisis and various other crises we have interconnected with that. Um, I think it's a very, very scary picture. And I think kind of the COVID experience of this year is a taster of, of what crises looks like and the fact that our systems are very fragile um, and arguably somewhat unsustainable. So it's easy, I think, to fall into despair but I don't think despair is going to solve the problem and actually is more likely to make us apathetic and more likely to make us go into a kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. And instead, actually, what we need to look at is the fact that there are tons of solutions and there are tons of trends going in the right direction. And there are tons of people and organizations and NGOs um, and even politicians, dare I say, that do care and are trying to solve these problems. And so for me, yeah, optimism is an important choice to make. Um, It's an active choice, not a kind of sit back, everything's going to be fine choice, um, but a choice that actually it's still all possible and therefore let's choose a better future. And the problem as you diagnose it is not simply an environmental climate change problem. You also talk about consumerism leading to waste. The fashion industry is one example, which you know well that you give. Um, but also income inequality. Are these all connected? Yeah, I think all of them are very connected. Um, And it could be, it could easily be perceived as an environmental book, but actually I'm looking at loads of economic, political, social arguments too, because they're all interconnected. Um, And I think that all of our challenges are fundamentally interconnected because they're a consequence of a system that we have and um, the systemic impacts 
Um, so you can't really solve one without solving, trying really actually to solve all of them. Well, in being optimistic, you look at how technology can help us out of the mess, but also how consumer attitudes, how cultural change can do that. Um, let's start with tech. Now, you've made a journey for the book. You've gone to see people like Elon Musk. You've gone to see people in Apple's Cupertino building. Um, what did you conclude and where can tech actually make a positive impact? Well, as you know, David, because you were quite supportive many years ago when we launched it, I set up my own tech company um, in 2013, so seven years ago. And I went into that space, I'd say, fairly naively thinking that tech, you know, has this amazing, powerful tool that can, call, you know, kind of create loads of disruptive, um, positive change. Uh, and I still do think it has the capacity to do that. Um, but I'm maybe a little bit more sceptical now of the different ways that technology has impacts and the different types of impacts it can have. Um, so I devote a whole quarter of the book, a whole kind of part to looking at technology. Um, and the, the kind of overriding question is, you know, will, will technology save us? And can we kind of bet on technology, whether it's in the food space or the plastics, alternative plastic space or digital space, um, or even like geoengineering and carbon capture and kind of fancy tech that might, you know, might literally change the atmosphere to fix it. Um, can we bank on that? Or what are the kind of dangers and the pitfalls of a, of a kind of techno vision? Um, and I try and balance out, I think, both sides, um, because I think that there's merit probably to being uh, enthusiastic about tech and also mindful that we use it in the right way. So you went to see a company called Zymogen that's using synthetic biology to eat plastics. And you also went to see a nuclear fusion company um, out of Germany. I mean, what most excited you of all the technology innovations you saw during your journey for the book that you thought, yes, this is really going to make an impact? Lots of them are super exciting. I think what Zymogen is doing and the kind of sector they represent is super interesting, i.e. how do you change the way that we make materials? Because for the most part of the last hundred years, we've been using petroleum to make the basis of most materials we use. Um, and we know that we have to move away from a petroleum oil landscape. And so how do we do that? Um, and I think the technical innovation that's going into new materials um, and also decomposing existing materials like plastic to create circular economies is super exciting. Um, I interviewed Hartmut Nivan, who's the head of quantum computing at um, Google. And I think that the breakthroughs they're making with quantum computing is really exciting. Um, uh, they reached kind of quantum supremacy last year around the time that I was meeting him. And we're yet to see how then supercomputers or quantum computers will um, innovate at a faster pace than humans are able to. I actually interviewed a scientist and I asked him, what do you think of all these different green technologies, whether it's carbon capture that a machine's trying to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, or solar panels, like well, where do you think the game changer is? And, um, and he said, it will be robots running laboratories because human beings need to pee, they need to eat, they need to check, they wanna check Facebook. Um, whereas once you have robots with kind of super, super, super brains doing the experiments, um, we'll be able to innovate at a much faster pace um, and I was also really inspired by Lisa Jackson um, at Apple and the fact that a company as huge as, as Apple are making really significant moves to try and clean up their supply chains and make them their products more circular. Oh, I've lost you. She's responsible for their environmental projects, the recycling. 
Yeah, exactly. And looking at their supply chains. And she said she came from the EPA where she was working with Obama for many years. And she um, she set the company this goal, which is kind of amazing that at some point Apple intends to stop mining altogether, i.e. they will have enough materials and minerals and metals in the system that they won't need to mine for more. Um, they haven't given it a date, but I mean, it'd be amazing if they if they reach that goal. And then you went to hang out with Elon, as one does. So you went to see Elon Musk. Tell us what you chatted about. Um, we started off talking about um, the fact that he's never sung a swimming pool. That's <laughs> a side note. Um, <laughs> um, the serious conversation began with the fact of um, what he's doing with Tesla and Solar City. I have a Tesla myself. I test drove all the electric cars on the market a few years ago before I bought the Tesla. Um, and I do think they have kind of really single-handedly moved that that whole um, industry towards electric. And now we're seeing almost every other car manufacturer coming out with electric cars. Um, and interestingly, their manifesto from the beginning was never really about electric cars. It was always about sustainable energy and the fact that we're not gonna move to sustainable energy unless we change all of our infrastructure to work with sustainable energy, of which of course, cars are an important part. Um, and then we also talked about space travel as one does and the idea of uh, why we might wanna fly to Mars and bring our human problems to Mars. I mean, that definitely is a big concern, right? It's like, can we sort out how we're dealing with this planet before we go to other planets? Um, but Stephen Hawking was a proponent also of, um, it's very badly named space colonization, um, space faring um, on the basis he said that humanities, there's so many, there's so many reasons why humanity might be wiped out in the next few centuries that it would be a safer bet if we were on lots of other planets. Yeah, colonization's going through a bit of a tough image at the moment. Do you think colonizing space is going to be the way we solve the problem? Elon talks about wanting to die on Mars, but not on impact. Um, but he sees going to Mars as a backup plan for our civilization. Do you, do you buy that argument? I mean, he, was, he is quite honest that the... the um the kind of survival argument that we're more likely to survive by being on many planets is only part of it. And actually he's more um, motivated by the traveler kind of instinct of like wanting to explore and adventure. Um, and part of me really understands that. I mean, it's what's kind of driven humanity to this point of time is the fact that we are an adventurous species as actually arguably all species are, you know, species always fighting to get into new spaces and new landscapes. Um, and I think that that can be very positive. Um, and um, at the same time, you know, colonialism has a bad image because it was a completely awful, fucked up project that we're still dealing with the impacts of. And do we want to model that same system and that same way of thinking in a wider landscape? I don't think so. And, uh, you know, every time stuff gets sent up into the sky, um, that's it makes me kind of feel uncomfortable because we don't want to put more junk in the sky when we've got enough waste and junk on our own planet. So I have, I have mixed, mixed feelings about it. Um, I mean, I write about his work, Elon's work in the context of a chapter on travel. And I think that air, like air travel in general is quite an amazing um, metaphor of the contradictions in the environmental conversation or in the human conversation right now between the amazing Kind of it's amazing air travel if you think about it you know Leonardo da Vinci was sketching out helicopters back in the day and so many humans before us sorry I've got a cat that just wandered in um so many humans before us have 
dreamed of, of breaking the limit, right, of getting into the air. Um, and air travel is amazing in the sense that it's connected up cultures. It allows us to expose ourselves and ideas and our cultures to, to, to new cultures and new people. Um, and obviously it's an economic lifeline to many communities. At the same time, it's the kind of poster child of environmental destruction. And what's the response to that? Do we say let's ban airplanes and ban that type of human innovation? Um, or do we say, actually, we want human innovation of that, of that nature, but can we change it and make it more sustainable? Um, and those are the types of contradictions and questions I'm trying to tease out in the book. So before airplanes stopped flying, were you taking fewer flights? I was taking much fewer, yeah. Um, I considered completely outruling flying um, per you know, Greta Thunberg's um, approach and decided that actually I didn't want to completely outrule it for the reasons I almost just described to you. Of actually, I think flying is an amazing innovation and used carefully and pushing the industry to innovate better. I don't want to completely rule it out, um, but I definitely uh, reduced massively to try and minimize my impact. And I started traveling Europe a lot by train, actually, and trying to um, see where I could get to in other ways. So you talk a lot about tech and science and what that can do, but you also talk about what individual consumers and their own decisions can make. And you have an optimistic view of people. In fact, you set up impossible the social enterprise that encourage people to do favors to gift things to each other um tell us why you did that what the purpose the goal was and how it evolved sure so that's yeah that's where we met when you were working at wired and i said it impossible um and it's still a surprise to me in a way that that fork in my path happened because I was never planning to work in technology and I hadn't heard of the gift economy. Um, and I actually feel like I grew up growing up in London in quite a community deprived area where you didn't know your neighbours and there wasn't a sense of community. And maybe, maybe that was part of my um, attraction to it. But in 2010, I visited a refugee camp on the Thai-Burmese border. And during that trip, I had this idea with a friend of mine um, for using technology to try and connect people to do kind of skills and favor swaps um, as a way to build community and also to build resilience into our systems so that if there's another economic crisis, we have alternative ways of meeting our needs and we're not completely dependent on a financial system that is fragile and also we forget is made up. Um, we, the idea had come off the back of a conversation about the 2008 crisis and wondering why when there are economic crises like that, um, humanity just kind of seems to, or society seems to kind of fall apart and not have other ways of trading and connecting, considering the real things of value, i.e. the skills, the services, the resources, are in equal abundance as they were before the crises. Um, we designed the platform to do that, so to allow people to kind of post their skills, their services, their needs. Um, we structured it as a social network, and then we had a matching system whereby, you know, if I said I can, you know, talk about, I can teach people about sustainable fashion or I can um, badly try and teach someone a bit of piano, um, then somebody else who was looking for those skills or services would see me and vice versa um, and make a, make a connection. And how big did it get? So we ran it for probably about two years. It got to 100,000 or just over 100,000 users around the world. Um, it had really nice stories. Like now I look back on it and I think about the community that did exist through the platform and all the kind of exchanges that we heard about and you know witnessed or, or, um, 
or heard about anecdotally were all so sweet and kind of confirmed the underlying idea, which is that people are nice. By the way, I didn't make it clear everything was done for free on the platform. Um, people are nice and kind and will help one another. And that was the kind of underlying thesis that I think was proven. Um, the challenge we had is that actually running a, a technology platform, especially a social network, is extremely expensive. Um, people are used to, you know, to social media platforms that have billions of pounds of funding behind them. Um, and so trying to make that a kind of good technical experience um, and financially viable when you're running a non-monetary gift economy space was almost a kind of contradiction. And in the end, we open sourced the technology. It's been used by a few communities since. Um, and, um, and I wrote about it in my book <laughs> to share the idea. Because I think my main learning, and that's what I write in the book, is that you don't need technology for it. I mean, technology can be a good catalyst, but community and kindness is, is, like, is omnipresent and is available to us at any given moment. And it's been really interesting, actually, I think, in the COVID landscape, how community and kindness and um, kind of networks of cooperation have organically and naturally occurred and risen up. Um, and of course, technology can be a helpful facilitator, but the technology is not really relevant. It's more about the kind of the spirit um, that you're trying to connect to. So you were an unconventional technology entrepreneur, um, just a normal girl growing up in West London, age 14, going into Soho. And then something happened in Soho that changed your course. Tell us what happened. Um, I'd love to like make up some other random story now, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I was 14 in Soho with some friends and um, a, guy, a guy called Benjamin Hart, who was a very handsome model from the agency Storm, came over and interrupted me and my girlfriend and asked me if I'd be interested to model and gave me the kind of the card that then sent me into the agency. Um, and, and yeah, that did, was a kind of big fork in my path because the next year I was flying around the world, working a lot and um, opening my eyes, I guess, to, to different, to whole different worlds in many different ways. And the fashion industry, I think, as you point out in the book, um, is encouraging consumption, waste, new season, new clothes. Did you get that sense when you were working in it that there was a problem? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why I ended up kind of on the path that I've been on. Um, the first thing I started looking at was supply chains and trying to understand a bit better what I was wearing and who I was modeling for and what I was selling. And as soon as I did that, and it wasn't on purpose, I just kind of came, became aware of a few quite negative stories that I felt complicit in being part of. Um, and as I tried to kind of push against those and educate myself, I tried instead to be part of more positive stories because I actually think, you know, trade and supply chains can be really destructive and negative. We've all heard a million stories of um, pollution and sweatshop labor, etc. Um, but they can conversely be very, very positive and they can be a way to pay people well and empower communities um, to use materials that are environmentally sustainable. And so I kind of pivoted to try and either work with companies that were producing things in a positive way or founding my own companies, which is how I ended up becoming a bit of an accidental entrepreneur by starting companies that were trying to model it better. You... Talk about conscious consumerism in the book, but you're a bit skeptical about the concept. Isn't the active decision of the consumer the answer to a lot of this? I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, it would have been very, um, uh, kind of very big on conscious consumerism. And I still am. I mean, it's a huge part of the book. 
because I think that our political voice um, in the clearest way, i.e. when we go to vote, is quite limited in the given system. You know, it can, I think that's why people probably feel quite frustrated by politics because we are, we have so little impact in terms of, you know, we get a choice of two candidates for the most part between every four to five years. And then in the gaps in between, we can sign petitions, but we don't actually have much of a participatory relationship with democracy. Um, whereas how we spend our money every single day is a political choice that has a political impact. Um, we live in a capitalist global framework where money is really important and even the most powerful CEOs in the world are fundamentally listening to their consumers and listening to their customers, um, listening by way of which, you know, what, what the market is saying. Um, so I think speaking that language and being aware of your impact every day with your spending choices is really, really important. Um, I'm skeptical because the idea that we can just shop our way out of crisis is obviously bullshit and we need to, alongside thinking about consuming in a better way, um, also maybe think about kind of other narratives around slow growth and simplicity and consuming less. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think any, I like anything, I don't think it's simple, but I think conscious consumer and consumerism has a role to play for sure. Isn't one of the problems that prosperity success is measured in growth, in economic growth, in GDP, and yet there are some alternatives being proposed. Um, which of those alternatives do you think has the greatest promise? Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually, when I was researching that part of the book, it turns out the guy who, um, I think his name is Simon Kuznets, forgive me if I get it slightly wrong, who founded the concept of GDP, um, warned about, this is like earlier in the 20th century, warned against it being misused and said that there is a difference between kind of, kind of good domestic products and bad domestic products and we should be qualifying it. So, for example, crime... Um, the arms trade shouldn't be considered in GDP, but it is presently because the way we've applied it, it's very, very neutral, which means that things that are arguably quite negative end up contributing to GDP, um, even if they're having a negative impact on human health, human well-being, um, the environment. So I think there's been a bit of work around how can we change how we measure GDP so that it is um, kind of more reflective of value. Um, there's also been a kind of conversation around green GDP, so how do you subtract from GDP what the kind of fiscal cost of environmental damage is? Um, and apparently China's uh, green GDP would be a quarter less than what their kind of actual GDP is. Um, and um, uh, Bhutan is famous for gross domestic happiness, which I think is an interesting experiment. Um, you know, can we, alongside, alongside GDP, look at other measurements like happiness and um, find a kind of more holistic way to measure well-being within our communities. You come out as a bit of a fan of the universal basic income as a way of helping bridge the economic gaps. Explain a bit more. Sure. So the book is peppered with some of these ideas that when I heard about was like a eureka moment. And universal basic income is one of those. The first time I heard about it, I was just like, wow, this is such a brilliant new way of thinking about a problem. And it's been exciting in recent years to see how much momentum universal basic income is getting around the world, with even actually Spain as a whole country proposing to implement it um, in the COVID landscape. Um, so the, the premise of universal basic income is that, and, it, and it's different, obviously, like anything, there are different versions of it. But the fundamental premise is that every single person would get a basic income. 
and it wouldn't be means tested and it wouldn't be dependent on any kind of criteria, um, which means there wouldn't be loopholes that people need to jump through to prove their worth, um, which are both really dehumanizing to people that have to jump through those loopholes. And I say that as somebody with a disabled mum, so I've seen how dehumanizing and difficult that process can be for people. Um, but also it means it's, it saves money for the system because you haven't got some massive bureaucracy policing who deserves or doesn't deserve help. Um, coupling the fact that we're moving towards a more automated world where there is more likely to be, and there's already happening, we've got more and more unemployment, something like universal basic income offers to um, create a kind of social security net for the world as we move into that automated future. I don't think, um, when I say I'm a fan, I'm super, I'm really a fan of like piloting it and testing it and experimenting and finding the version bit that works best. I don't think there's like a perfect version that exists yet. There's probably issues that will arise with it that we haven't, we haven't kind of seen yet, but we're only going to figure out if it's better than the system we have right now by testing it and piloting it and being open-minded to it. So I'm, I'm super excited about it as an experiment that should be watched closely. Are you? Okay. Yeah, although I'm a realist and I see politicians at the moment thinking, hey, we may need to move back towards austerity to solve some of the debt problems. So I think you've got to have just the right um, team of bold people making these decisions. But I think in some smaller countries in Europe, I think in Finland, they've been trying it and it's pretty effective. Um, we do need bold solutions. But that leads me to think, was the book partly Lily thinking, I want to go into public life, I want to be a campaigner, I want to go into politics? No, not at all. <laughs> um, I get people say it to me occasionally, do you want to be a politician? And, I, and my body just see, like has a kind of shudder reaction. Um, so why write it? You were busy enough, you were modelling and acting and doing the entrepreneurial things. It's a big commitment writing a book. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think I'm a workaholic who ironically wanted to work about slowing down and working less, which is part of the book, <laughs> um, and why that would help. Um, no, why did I write it? I mean, I, in a boring answer, I wrote it because I was asked by Penguin to write about the gift economy and the ideas behind that. And I um, had done so much research around the gift economy, um, on the sociology of it and the psychology and why I think it's very positive, that it felt, it felt good to kind of... Um, put that to paper and share that. Um, and then in the process of doing that, I just thought, you know, there's so many other great ideas and initiatives that I've been, uh, been privileged to either work on or hear about or know about. And um, it would be really good to try and capture that and share that information. In the process of writing it, which has been the last four years, um, a lot of those positive trends I was documenting have accelerated and that's been great to kind of continue documenting and, and charting. Um, but also the environmental picture is just getting scarier and scarier. It was scary to me 15 years ago when I started looking at the environment and realizing that we were threatening the only planet we have to live on. Um, and it was kind of crazy to me that everyone wasn't freaking out about it because it's so fundamental. And since 2018, when the inter, I can never pronounce it right, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel, Panel on Climate Change, um, released the 2018 report, which basically said to all the world leaders, you have 12 years to change everything and do transformational change of all our system, or we are in a very, very, very dangerous situation. Um, and it was, a re it was really scary. Um, and so I'm also writing it because I think we are actually in a really, really scary moment. Um, and we can be in denial about that, 
or we can like acknowledge it, listen to the scientists and then respond to that and say, okay, well, what do we need to do? Like what changes can we make? Um, and part of the effort of the book is trying to present some of the ideas that I think we can kind of be hopeful about in the hope that those ideas will maybe gain momentum and are more likely to steer us in a better direction. Um, whilst also at the same time trying to show both sides of every argument, because I think that these topics are super complex and there isn't kind of one thing like one silver bullet or one person's idea that's going to fix it all. We need to be in dialogue and we need to listen to each other to try and work together to solve this challenge. What concrete actions do you think the people watching and listening to you now can take tomorrow to go in the right direction? I think the first one is caring, you know, and not disconnecting from it. Um, I mean, Google the 2018 IPCC report, read their, their out, the things that come out or keep an eye on it through the news and engage. It's, it's daunting and it's scary to do that because the, the science is scary, but we need to do that. We have to kind of wake up and listen to our science um, and not just kind of sleepwalk into a next crisis or a next crisis. And then I think there's a kind of, we need to develop the kind of public political will, which I think is happening so that politicians know that people do care about this issue and do want kind of strong leadership that will help society in the right direction. Um, and then also I think be mindful of your own choices every day. And it's a confusing, you know, landscape um, to navigate. No one's perfect. Like we have to be easy on ourselves and not just point fingers because it's impossible to be perfect. Um, but try and understand the impact of the choices of what you eat, of what you buy, of, you know, how you spend your money basically, um, or how you choose not to spend your money. Um, because that really, really does add up. We are going to welcome some questions from the crowd, from our social network here. Um, so just if you're on Zoom, just use that to ask questions. Um, what's your next project, Lily? Um, my next project is to try and not take on a next project. <laughs> um, I do have, I mean, I run a company called Wise Glasses, which does take a lot of my time. Um, I'm still an advisor to Impossible, so I'm never going to be not working. But I've been working a lot of late, and I'd quite like to just take a breather and um, enjoy some time with my five-year-old daughter um, before I take on another big project. But it does sound like a lot of what you're doing now came out of Impossible. So even if it didn't become a phenomenally successful tech business um, called to testify towards Congress and so on, um, it led you to social connections. It led you to entrepreneurial connections that have been quite fruitful. Yeah, so Impossible actually does still exist as a company. We, um, in the process of doing the gift economy, we set up a few other kind of um, companies through Impossible and ideas through Impossible that do still now exist. And uh, we're essentially like an incubator um, that's trying to push technology in a more positive direction through a methodology we have called planet-centric design. Um, so it certainly, it pivoted, but it didn't, um, it didn't die. Um, and I think actually it's doing quite interesting work now, although I'm less involved day to day. Um, we've had actually tons of people, as I mentioned, uh, contact us, uh, I think I mentioned, uh, this year because of COVID in response to the fact that there has been more kind of community feeling and also the fact that there's an economic recession um, potentially underway. Uh, could, we, could we kind of uh, revive Impossible as a gift economy again? And we're exploring whether we might or not. Um, but yeah, in terms of my own personal trajectory, um, it definitely has been very positive because it, I think... Firstly, um, I learned a lot about community and the gift economy and the importance of it, and that's stuff I'm never going to let go, and it's, I'll shape my life as I can 
in that direction. Um, but also, um, it, friends. Sorry. Um, <laughs> International Friendship Day. <laughs> um, it shaped my life in a positive direction um, in, in terms of my understanding of community and my desire for community in my own life. Um, but also the fact that now I'm more involved in the tech world and I think I know a lot more about technology than I would have otherwise. So we're getting some um, good questions in from the crowd and I'll try and get to as many as we can. Um, Carmelita's asking about how we encourage younger people who love fashion to be more conscious about what they buy because um, often sustainable clothes companies are either expensive or a bit boring. <laughs> um, I think the bit boring thing, maybe you're right, I feel like that's changing. I feel like that was a, that was a big thing like 10 years ago. Sustainable fashion was very niche and a bit hempy. Um, whereas I think now there's a lot more going on um, that makes it interesting. I think that like the real answer is in politics that we need to raise the bar so that it's not possible to create um, such cheap products that are really damaging to the, to the planet and also potentially to the people and supply chains. Um, and things like uh, price on pollution, which almost everybody I interviewed for the book advocated from all different spectrums, i.e. that you make companies pay for their pollution at source rather than not pay for it and cause it and then someone else has to pay to clean up afterwards um, would help fix that. In the meantime, um, I think there has been a groundswell towards more conscious consumerism and in the fashion space, and I hope that continues. And I think the key is information and transparency. I, when I was you know, 12 years old, was buying in fast fashion stores because I was delighted. We didn't have much money, and I was just delighted that you could get stuff so cheap. Um, and I just didn't know. You know, It was just ignorant. I just didn't. It was the bliss of ignorance, right? I just didn't know what the real repercussions of that, um, of that was. Um, and I'm now in a very privileged position having worked in the industry that I really know the impact. So it's very easy for me to say that. And I think information is power. So actually, the more people understand the real impacts of things, they would then make the right choices. Um, in terms of sustainable fashion being more expensive, um, there are ex exceptions to that, like secondhand clothes, vintage, I think is a very good solution that's cheaper. Um, also, as big companies um, produce in a more ethical way, they can do it at scale, which makes it cheaper. But there's also another part of the narrative, which is that it does genuinely cost more to make things well. And I know that as somebody who's done several businesses now, um, usually in a kind of social business, non-for-profit structure, and trying to do things in a positive way ends up being a more expensive product. And I think a lot of people are deluded about how much things actually cost to make if you do things in a really positive way. And so then the solution to that would be, can we reduce what we buy and buy with a different attitude, which is buy things you really, really love that may cost a bit more, but you feel really good about the story behind it and how it was made. And it's something you're going to look after and treasure and still wear in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time, maybe pass on to your, to your kids or your friend's kids. Yeah, I just spent four months not going into a single shop and, you know, I could get used to it, which links me to a reason for optimism counterintuitively. Um, Christopher is suggesting that maybe COVID has given us an opportunity with fewer flights, you know, less need for offices. Do you see some positives coming out of this moment? Yeah, I really do. Um, and I have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, I'm in a privileged position where I can not work or, you know, I can do my Zoom calls and it's not a huge impact on my life. So I don't want to be... Um, um, 
you know, uncompassionate to the fact that a lot of people are really suffering right now. Um, and it's been a huge kind of negative cost to the situation. But from an environmental perspective, it is very promising because we have all had to, or many of us have had to slow down. And I think there's been a chance to kind of reflect and be introspective about our choices and our values and, and the kind of the normal we want to go back to, you know. I think there was actually, I read a um, survey in England of how many people want to go back to how things were pre-COVID. And it was overwhelmingly the majority said they didn't want to go back to how things were before because it wasn't normal. Like it was never normal. I was in, you know, Davos in January with the climate scientists and the Greta Thunberg and the school strikers. And you have teenagers like almost in tears because they're saying to the adults, just listen to the scientists. This isn't normal. You know, you're on a crazy trajectory. Um, So a break in that so we can define a new normal, I think can only maybe be a positive thing. Um, and actually, if you look at it historically, when there have been crises in the past, often there's been really positive change that happens as a consequence. You know, the emancipation of women through the war, um, the founding of the welfare state, the national kind of um, healthcare systems. So there is the potential to be used in a negative way, but there is the potential to be used in a positive way. And I would just hope that we go towards the, the positive. A couple of people are looking for Lily recommendations. So firstly, Priscilla is interested in which organizations currently are doing work that excite you? Mm. Um, I'm still a patron of the Environmental Justice Foundation, who I think are fantastic. They're a very small organization in London um, that look at supply chains. And also they look at the intersections between environmental injustice and social injustice, um, whereas often those two things get separated out. They are fundamentally interconnected. Um, I have worked with Greenpeace, WWF, the World Land Trust a little bit over the years. Um, who else? Ecoside, I think, are quite interesting. Stop Ecoside. So that's a campaign. And Client Earth, those are different campaigns that are trying to use the legal structures to um, create laws, basically, to protect for the environment. Um, so, yeah, those are the ones I probably, from an environmental perspective, want to give a shout out to. And then Ben is looking for your recommendations of books, apart from Who Cares Wins, he should be reading. Fact, whatever. I love that you did it apart from who cares wins as if I was going to say, well, just who cares wins. <laughs> just that one. Um, which books I recommend? I loved a book um, called We Are the Weather that came out last year by Jonathan Safran Foa um, that looks at climate change through kind of what we eat and arguing that the simplest choice, which is like how you, you know, what you eat tomorrow and that we can all make that choice or many of us can make that choice. Um, is one of the biggest keys to solving the climate crisis. Um, I was actually today for something else speaking to um, Isabella Tree, author of Rewilding. I like I like her book, which where she looked at um, took a, over a kind of farm estate in England and rewilded it. Rewilded it. Um, I'm reading right now a book by James Sussman called Work, which is an advanced copy because I'm friends with him. But it comes out in September, and it's he's a super interesting anthropologist that's looking at kind of um, humanity's relationship to work and how that has changed over the years. Now you went to see an awful lot of experts in formulating the argument of the book, you know, David Attenborough, bosses of big non-profits. Um, Phil is asking that in this world of post-truth, fake news and division, how do you get people to listen to genuine experts? Hmm. (laughs) 
That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I have the answers to it. Um, I mean, probably in the technology sector, the area I'm least optimistic about um, is social media and the way that it's been trending in recent years because of its ability to polarize us, um, distort politics, create fake news. And we fundamentally can't have a healthy democracy without a healthy media, without a healthy access to information and truth. Um, how do you get around that? I'm not sure, but I think, I mean, listening to scientists, having a kind of culture that respects science and listens to science and put scientists on a pedestal would be a good start. Um, and actually, somebody was saying to me the other day, it's interesting how in COVID, you'd never heard so many politicians say, we're listening to the science. It's like, great, keep doing that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's yeah, a cultural shift towards um, focusing on yeah, people who've dedicated their lives, not to making money, but to understanding reality and trying to share that information with us. Roberto is concerned we're not being radical enough. If the title of this conversation is about radical optimism, um, he says his five-year-old, his future, his, his son, um, as he grows older, is maybe going to be confronting more pessimism than optimism. So Roberto is asking how we can cultivate much more radical optimism. I guess it depends what one means by radical. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Every, what, do you, I think, what do you mean by it? I mean, I didn't write that title, um, to be fair. But I think that I, the way I would interpret it is that we need to be brave, you know, um, Ideas like universal basic income, the Green New Deal, you know, taxes on pollution, stopping fossil fuel subsidies. Like there are ideas out there that exist, that have been talked about, debated, some of them have been piloted and tested. And we need to believe that we can have a better future. We need to believe that we can protect the environment for our children's or our friends' children, if you don't have children, the next generation. Like I think that for me is radical optimism, is not focusing just on the on the problems and assuming that the future is written it's actually taking the agency seat to say i'm alive in 2020 i'm part of this narrative i'm a human part of this collective narrative right now what can i do to try and create the future i want to see rather than the inevitable one i think is going to happen um, and that may that may mean radical change you know it may mean radical steps i don't mean radical is a bit scary to me as a word sometimes it feels a bit like revolutionary which has always been a bit bloody and nasty it doesn't need to be that but it needs to be brave you know, it needs to be a willingness to accept that what the status quo and how things have been is too risky and that we need to be bold enough to make changes personally, collectively, politically. And what about in your own relationship with your daughter? Annette is asking how you can make her, your own child, aware of the state of the world, how serious the trouble is, but still giving her a sense of hope and a willingness to make things better? Well, I feel really grateful, actually, that my daughter's only five, because were she 15, I would inevitably have to have these conversations with her, and I think it'd be really terrifying to be a teenager right now. Um, whereas with a five-year-old, I feel more of a moral responsibility to not kind of load her head with the kind of fear picture of the way things are going in the science um, and let her enjoy her childhood. At the same time, I try and, you know, encourage values that I think are important, whether it's 
you know, a love of nature and a respect of nature or thinking about waste and, you know, kind of waste in all of its manifestations um, in the hope that, you know, kids inevitably rebel, right? So she might go in the opposite direction, but in the hope that um, that, that might guide her. And that being said, I also feel like I'm listening, you know, I'm listening to the younger generation. Um, I feel like the youth have so much to teach us and that we need to also empower the youth to, to be leaders in this moment and to be leading us because actually they're often kind of pointing out how limited our thinking is, you know, in a way. Although quite a lot of people feel, um, well, there's not much I can do. It's out of our hands, a bit paralysed. Melanie's asking, how do you deal with climate anxiety when people feel helpless? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Um, I've suffered it myself in the past. I think if you if you really like absorb the science and the data like I've encouraged people to do, it's hard to do that and not feel um, very upset, you know, because it's a very scary picture. And I think that's why probably a lot of us are almost sleepwalking and living in a kind of collective disbelief because to actually to actually digest what people are saying what scientists are saying that we may lose a million species in the next 10 years that we may destabilize the environment to the point that we hit tipping points that are out of our control um that there are going to be increasing there are already increasing droughts and desertification like accepting all that information there may be a water crisis around the corner um that animal agriculture systems create pandemics you know that one was proven true this year like to accept all of that information is I think really scary and it's easy then to get anxiety um the irony is and I thought about this a lot that actually by like focusing on our mental health and like looking after ourselves and developing a relationship with nature we are more likely and there's lots of research that shows this to be happier to um to decrease our anxiety and in a kind of consequence of developing a like relationship with nature and thinking about alternative values and meditation, we're also more likely to do behavior that's less damaging to the planet. So it feels like the, the, the cure is the problem in a funny way. Um, and that actually, if you develop a kind of version of environmentalism, which is about loving nature and loving the world and trying to develop a relationship with nature and a relationship with the world, um, you may actually also be happier as well as slightly more on the path of, uh, of a healthier future. Cool. And probably room for just one more question. Um, this goes to William. Um, you've started a business to try and make a, an impact. What kind of businesses would you think people could usefully start today if they want to have the greatest possible impact? Hmm. Well, I'd say that running a business is really hard work um, and really difficult, whether it's trying to be sustainable or not. But I think it's especially difficult if it's trying to be socially responsible and sustainable um, because it's not a level playing field. And so I wouldn't encourage anyone to go into business unless that's something they feel compelled and called to do and they have an idea they're excited about. Um, if they do feel compelled and called to do it and are excited about their idea, then great, go for it. And I, my advice would probably be chat to people about your idea. Like, don't feel like oh I can't tell anyone about my idea because they might copy me like actually ideas are easy action is much harder um talk to people about your idea and try and get help because the amount in when I've been working on businesses the amount of um, support I've received from other people has been amazing and has really kind of helped lift up the project and if you're trying to do a business that's trying to solve a problem or it has social purpose to it you'll probably find people are super helpful that's a optimistic note to believe in 
to end with. <laughs> Can we now go over live to your party for the next four or five hours? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all Second Home friends for making us part of your live cultural series. This episode was brought to you by Second Home as part of our Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up.